A man's home is his castle. I'm sure that's a phrase that a lot of you are very familiar with. It's uh, definitely uh, an Anglo phrase, and it goes all the way back to 1628. It's from a law in England, and it speaks of the heart feelings of safety and security that we expect from and in our homes. William Pitt the Elder, the Prime Minister of the UK, clarified this law in 1763, saying this, The poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. It may be frail, its roof may shake, the wind may blow through it, the storm may enter, the rain may enter, but but the King of England cannot enter. You hear that idea of safety and security coming through in William Pitt's statement there? Even the ruler of the country can't enter a man's house, no matter how low in status this man is, without this man's permission. And more recently, this phrase uh, came back into popular culture when it featured in this cult Aussie film. That, of course, was uh, Daryl Kerrigan and his neighbours trying to fight the might of Airlink in the cult Aussie film The Castle. And that phrase, a man's home is his castle, runs throughout the film. It's only mentioned once, but that idea runs throughout the film as he fights them to try and keep his home. I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it and tell you what happens. There may be some. Those of us who own or rent our own home, we we understand that feeling, don't we, of that safety and that security that we get from having a place that we can call our own. We can get home at night, we can shut the doors, we can shut the world out, and it's our sanctuary, isn't it? And those who don't have a home of any permanency, they long for a place to call their own. And it's the same heart feelings that drive that, a longing for a place of security and safety. Well, friends, this morning, we're going to see that our craving for a home, for a place of safety and security... That's a normal human thing. It's normal because that's the way God made us. And that craving for a home can only be satisfied in one place, in God. So how do we get home? How do we satisfy this craving? We don't. God gets us home. God does all the work. And we're going to see that as we look at today's passage, and we're going to look at it in three parts. Firstly, we're going to look at God's plan to bring his children home. Secondly, we're going to see that God is bringing his children home. And thirdly, we're going to look at the response of God's thankful children at home. So we pick up the storyline at a critical time in the Israelite nation's history. They've now been wandering around the desert for 40 years, trying to find their way to their promised home. You see, God has promised them a land or a home that they're going to live in. He's freed them from slavery. He's led them across the Red Sea and onto Mount Sinai. And all of this was under their great leader and prophet, Moses. God has then given them the law that they were to obey as their side of the promise. But again and again we see them break God's law until he's told them that no adult who was over 20 when they came out of Egypt would enter their new home. Except Joshua and Caleb. You see, they were the only two of God's scouting party, of Moses' scouting party, that trusted and obeyed God and said they should go into the land in the first place. You can read more of that account in Numbers 14. 
And so we've seen the people wandering around the desert now for 40 long years, following God's pillar of fire and smoke, with God feeding and providing for them, until all the people who are over 20 have died out in the desert, including Moses. But God's now raised up a new leader for Israel, Joshua. He's the man who will finally lead them home. Joshua has sent out his own spies, and the spies have returned with encouragement to go ahead and enter the land. And as we join the story in Joshua 3, we find the Israelites are camped out by the River Jordan. On the other side of the river is their promised land, their new home, a paradise flowing with milk and honey, a place of safety and security for them. But in the way is a big, big problem. A big river. You see, the Jordan was in flood. We see that in verse 15 of chapter 3. They are so close, but they're so far. They can see their home, but they just can't quite get to it. You can almost imagine the frustration. After 40 years of wandering around in circles, the fire and smoke GPS has led them to a dead end. A river they can't get across. It's just too fast, too wide, and too deep. But God has a plan to bring his children home. We see the officers of Israel, at least, have faith that God knows what he's doing, because they go around the camp telling everyone to get ready to follow the ark. And that's in verses 2 to 4. Joshua goes around telling the people to consecrate themselves, as he knows God is going to do amazing things the next day. It's in verse 5. When he tells them to consecrate themselves, consecration is just the act of preparing to approach God. They're in a sinful state, so they can't approach God's holiness. So they need to purify themselves and set themselves apart as God's chosen people. For the Israelites, this simply took the form of ritual cleansing. They'd clean their clothes in the river, muddy though it was, and they'd refrain from any sexual activity. The fact the Israelites were told to consecrate themselves indicates that God is going to come near his people and he's going to do something pretty special among them the next day. Well, next we see Joshua giving further instructions. This time he talks to the priests in verse 6, telling them, take up the Ark of the Covenant, pass on among the people. And the priests do as they're instructed. And then in verse 7, we see God giving some instructions to Joshua. And he starts with a word of reassurance. He tells Joshua that he's going to exalt him in the eyes of Israel. He's going to show the nation that, God, uh, that Joshua is God's chosen Messiah for Israel, which just means Israel's anointed representative, just like Moses was before him. And God lets Joshua in on what the miracle will be. He tells him, when the priests reach the edge of the Jordan's river, go and stand in the river. At this point in the text, we see a pattern that repeats throughout the story. So you're going to see it a few times. God instructs Joshua. Joshua then instructs others and passes on the message faithfully. So having been told by God what the plan is, Joshua gives the Israelites their pre-game pep talk in verses 9 to 13. And they're going to need it. Because he reminds them that there's a lot of enemies in the land. That's all the ites that are mentioned there. But he tells them God's going to drive out their enemies before them. 
And he lets them in on what God's plan is to bring his children home. And it's some plan. You see, the moment the ark of God is carried into the water, God's going to stop the river and create dry land for them to pass through. We have to remember, this is a nation that's been wandering in the wilderness for a whole generation. This generation hadn't witnessed the last great miracle that God had performed when they left Egypt. But this generation was about to get its own miraculous sign of God's power and authority. So let's have a look at how this plan played out for the Israelites. We see in verse 14 that the next morning the Israelites break camp, perhaps after a bit of a sleepless night, anticipating what God's going to do among them. I don't know about you, but I can almost imagine the scene. There's a bit of excitement, there's a bit of anticipation, possibly a little bit of doubt. But then there's a commotion. The priests are passing by with the ark. And so we all fall in behind the priests. As we reach the banks of the river, we're confronted by a raging torrent of water, 30 metres wide and 3 metres deep. The river's in flood and there's no way across. The harvest time and the river has been swirled by the melting snow on the surrounding mountains to the point that it's well past its usual banks. And we hold our breath and we wait as the priests boldly walk on and put their feet into this raging torrent. But the moment the priest's feet touch the water, the river stops. It's a miracle. The water piles up until it reaches kilometres upstream to the town of Adam, while downstream of us the riverbed is completely free of water. In joy we hurry across the river with the rest of Israel, running across this dry riverbed past the ark of God and the priests who are still standing there holding the ark and into the promised land. We're home, we've arrived. And looking back we can see the rest of Israel running across behind us And there in the middle of the river is the ark of God. God's presence. God himself stopping the water and creating a way across for us. God bringing us, his children, into our new home. So what can we learn here today in Nunnawal, 21st century, from the miraculous delivery of God's children into their new home? Well, there's a couple of clues for us in the passage Firstly, these events take place at the harvest time. Aside from the impact that this had upon the river, turning a normally quiet, small, narrow river into this raging torrent with all the melting snow. Aside from this, the harvest time is the time of the Passover. This is really significant because here we see lots of references back to the original Exodus from Egypt a generation before. As we said earlier, none of the people entering the land would have remembered the Exodus. They were all too young. The original Passover, when the firstborn of all Egyptians was struck down, but the Israelite children were spared by God in the final plague. And following the Passover, God parted the Red Sea as he made a way for them to leave Egypt and enter the desert. And he now bookmarks that at, bookends that at the other end and parts the Jordan for them to leave the desert and enter the promised land. Joshua even reminds the Israelites of this in chapter 4, verse 23. So he sees that parallel. 
And through this, God has shown the new generation that he works just as mightily through Joshua as he did through Moses. And he does this by performing a very similar miracle through him. And not just any miracle, but one of the foundational miracles for the Jewish nation. Part of the first and the greatest act of salvation that they had known as they were freed from slavery. Well, secondly, the location provides a clue for us. Take a, look, take a look at verse 16 with me. It says this, It piled up in a heap at a great distance away at a town called Adam, while the water flowing down to the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, depending on the translation, was completely cut off. Many years later, another chosen representative, another Messiah of the Jewish nation would enter the Jordan River on their behalf. He would get baptised for the forgiveness of sins on behalf of the whole nation in the same bitter river. And having been consecrated for the nation, he would go on to perform an even greater act of salvation, this time for the whole world on behalf of Israel, fulfilling their duty to save all nations through an even greater plan to bring God's children home from all over the world. Friends, this man was Jesus. And in dying for all the sins of all the people for all time and being raised to life again, he too stopped the flow of water that goes from Adam and flows on to death. And he allowed each and every one of us to become his children and to enter into a new home with him for eternity. And just like the promised land for the Israelites, this new home of ours is paradise. You've been working through Revelation with Russ over this last term or so. And you may recall that this new home is described in terms like this. It's a city. It's made of precious jewels. It's made of jasper. It's made of glass. It has streets paved with gold and has a crystal clear river running straight through the middle, giving the water of life. And the tree of life is in the middle of the city. It's a great picture, isn't it, of this paradise that is promised for each and every one of us through Jesus. So how do we get to enjoy this paradise? Turn with me to John 14. And Jesus says this to his disciples and to us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Friends, Jesus is the only way to go home forever. He promises that he has prepared a room for each and every one of us in our true home. And he's the only way to get there. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, God has a plan for you. He has a plan to bring you, his child, home to be with him. Jesus is God's plan to bring you home to be with him. 
He is the means to stop the raging torrent that keeps you from home. And he calls you to follow him across the river into that new home. But just like the priests in Joshua's time, you have to take a step too. He calls you to trust him, to step out into that river, trusting that he will clear a path across for you. And you can trust him because he already has cleared that path across for you on dry land through his death and his resurrection. And if you want to take that step this morning, can I encourage you to speak to an elder here at church? Come and chat to me or chat to a friend who brought you here today. Or even just grab the person next to you and talk to them. Ask someone to pray with you. Ask someone to put you in touch with people who can help you as you start out on your journey to your new home. And for those of us here this, this morning who do know Jesus, be assured, our rooms are waiting for us. They are rooms in the best six-star hotel that money can't buy. And Jesus is coming back to take us there when he returns. That is a reason to live a life full of joy and confidence. Because we know our future is secure in him. But just like the Israelites, we're home, but we're not fully home yet, are we? And as we read on in Joshua, we see that God and the Israelites still had plenty of work to do to be fully at home in this land. They still had to drive out all of the ites to have complete rest and to finish God's plan to bring them home. In the same way, God has already done everything that we need to bring us home. In Jesus, we are assured of our place in our new home. But the plan isn't finished yet. We will only fully experience our new home when Jesus returns to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So what do we do in the meantime while we wait for him to return? Well, the answer to that question is found in Joshua chapter 4. So flick back to Joshua chapter 4. Hopefully you kept a bookmark in there when we went off it earlier. And we see the people's response to God bringing them home. So at this point in the story, the nation is home. They've finished crossing the river, Jordan. But there is one final thing to do before the priests are allowed to come up out of the riverbed. Remember there was 12 volunteers that Joshua gathered back in chapter 3. I've skipped over them when we looked at chapter 3. Well, now's their moment. Again, we see God tells Joshua, who tells the people. And the men go down into the riverbed and they each pick up a large stone from where the priests are standing with the Ark of God. The men bring them back and they place them in a large circle where they're camping. And only once this is finished does God tell Joshua, who tells the priests, come up out of the river. And as soon as they are back on dry land, bang, that raging torrent starts behind them again, cutting off the way back across. Well, why did they do this? Why did they grab 12 stones? Joshua explains this action to the Israelite people, which is, what, 40,000 plus men, plus women, plus children, a lot of people. And he explains it like this. There's one stone for every tribe of Israel. That's verse 5. The reason? So that all the tribes of Israel are represented in this act 
as all the tribes were delivered in the miracle. Secondly, these stones are to be a memorial to God's miraculous work that will testify to future generations. It's verses 21 to 23. And thirdly, they're to be a reminder to all nations that God is powerful and that all men should fear him. In short, this is an act of worship, of praise and of thanks to God for his deliverance. So how are we doing on that count? Those of us who've been saved by Jesus, made children of God, given a new home in him, are we living thankful lives to him? Lives that worship God in everything and with everything that we have. We live in lives that show that we fear the Lord. And what do lives that are lived like that even look like? We see throughout chapter 4, when they raise the 12 stones, and as we look forward into chapter 5, when they renew the covenant by recircumcising all the boys, we see this. We see the Israelites worshipping God by acting in obedience to God. So the first thing we can take from these chapters is that thankful lives are lives lived in obedience to God. We're to be obedient. A life of thankful worship, fearing God, giving him the praise, that will be evident by us keeping God's commands to us. Not because we must, but because we love him and we want to. But how should we be obedient to God? Well, there's two specific ways that are raised in this chapter 4 with the 12 stones. And we're going to deal primarily with one of them and then we're going to deal pretty quickly with the second one because it's a common thing that we talk about in church. So we'll start with the bigger one. And it's this. Firstly, the stones were raised as a permanent reminder to their children and their grandchildren of God's faithfulness in bringing them home. That's verses 21 to 22. Back in Joshua's time, Children were welcomed into God's family, which was the nation of Israel, through the symbolic act of circumcision, which is why they do it again in chapter 5. In the same way, today, we welcome children into God's family, which is now the church, through the symbolic act of baptism or dedication. And as part of this baptism or dedication service, as we welcome this child into the family of God, We as a church family make a promise, don't we? That promise is to pray for the child and to teach the child all about God so that they may prayerfully grow up to trust in God and in his plan to bring them home to him as well. So what does that commitment to teach our children look like here at NLPC? Well, I want to start by encouraging you I think you have great programs here to teach your children. You have SMIGS, Friday Night Youth Group, Creche, Kids Biz, Sunday Afternoon Youth Group, Young Adult Bible Study, and I'm sure there's more that I've forgotten or that have started since I left. All of these things are served by committed volunteers, be that parents, grandparents, singles, marrieds, olds, young. They're all volunteers who love God, who love your kids, and are passionate about teaching them about God. So keep going with these programs. Keep improving them. Keep working hard at teaching your children through these organised programs 
And don't take them for granted or the people who run them for granted. They're a great blessing as a church to have them. But as Tim said earlier, they're only a supplement to what we do at home. So what about in day-to-day life? When we're away from those organised programmes and we're teaching our kids in the mundane of life, how do we all play a part in that? Not just parents. Yes, the primary responsibility for teaching kids about Jesus lies with parents who have been blessed with the gift of children. So I'll start with you guys and myself. Parents, are we praying regularly with our kids? Are we teaching and modelling to them the importance of turning to God in prayer in every circumstance of life? Are we committed to teaching our kids the truth of the Bible? Are we committed to regularly having a time of family devotions to learn about God, to pray to him, to worship him as a family? Are we modelling the importance of reading our Bibles by doing our daily readings in place where the kids can see us do it? So it's practice, not just words that we're telling them. And are we living out the gospel in our day-to-day actions so that they see it making a difference in our lives? But teaching our kids about God, well, it's a whole church activity, a whole church command in the Bible. So parents, are we creating opportunities for others to be involved in our kids' lives and for others to teach our kids about God? Or are we putting up the barriers in our homes and shutting out the rest of the church and doing it just by ourselves. How can we lower those barriers? How can we have people into our homes in a way that's meaningful and that will be helpful for our kids? Here's a few ways. Firstly, we can be open and honest with each other in church about how life is so that we can all be supporting each other in prayer. Secondly, we can be deliberate and proactive in welcoming a small number of single people and married couples without kids into our regular family life on a regular, long-term basis. Whether that's through dinners or hanging out at the weekends, that's something we've been committed to. And we've found that through this, our children continue to benefit from having additional godly adult role models. In fact, they've even gone so far as now to claim that some of our friends are actually their friends, not ours. Isn't that wonderful that they've got those people in their lives? It's a huge blessing for us. But the benefits flow both ways. See, for the singles and the marriage without children, you have the opportunity to experience the chaos and the messy reality of what is our family life. And hopefully that's helpful when or if you have children and hopefully will help you to raise your children in God's family world too. But what about those of us without children? Whether that's singles, whether that's marriage without kids, whether that's people who are older with adult kids who've left home, or grandparents. How can we proactively play a role in raising the children in this, our church family? Because that's the promise we made. Never underestimate how important it is to us parents for you just to chat with our kids or to play with our kids. 
We love seeing them learning and growing as they interact with, in our case, people way cooler in their eyes than their own parents. It's probably not hard in our case. Really simple. Join in the family soccer game after church. Talk to the kids about what they're reading or how they're going at school. Help them with their homework if you're any good at the subject they're studying. Ask our kids how they're going with God. Give them good godly advice and importantly pray for families pray for your friends with kids that they would be faithful in teaching their children about God pray for the kids that they would trust in Jesus and pray for the exhausted set of parents who are running on adrenaline and coffee and finally take the opportunities that are there to be involved in the regular day-to-day activities of family life with your friends. Become adopted aunts and uncles in God's family who invest in the children of this church in all aspects of their lives. This may not get said enough to each of you, but can I say to you this morning, us parents are, um, are all for surrounding our children with friends, and role models who love God and speak truth and wisdom into their lives. We really, really appreciate all of our single friends and our friends who don't have kids. Those of you who invest in our kids' lives, you play a crucial role in raising our children to trust in God and in his plan to bring them home. There's a second way raised here as well. The 12 stones are a reminder to all nations on earth of the power of God in rescuing his children and bringing them home. It's verse 24. So we're only briefly going to deal with this because evangelism is something we talk about a lot in churches. So I'm simply going to ask you these questions. How are you going with taking this amazing news of God's plan to bring his children home through Jesus out into the town of Nunnawal here? Individually, Are you talking to your neighbours, your friends, your family and your colleagues about Jesus? As a church, are you reaching out to your local community here? Are you praying for your community regularly? Are you meeting practical needs in your community and running events to tell people about Jesus? I'll leave those questions with you to think about during the week. Well, to wrap up, friends, God has seen through a great plan to bring us, his children, home to himself. And he's done it at great cost to himself through Jesus' death and resurrection. And he has now promised us a great future with him in our eternal home. This revelation should cause such gratitude within us that we should desire to obey his commands to tell our children of him and to tell the nations of him. Not because we must, but because we love him and we do it in gratitude. And as we live lives in obedience to his commands, we should live joyfully, thankfully, confidently in God's grace, boldly praying for our children and neighbours, and we should do it ready to proclaim his revelation to the future generations and to all the people around us here in Nunnawal. And we can do this assured of our salvation of our place as a child of God and our place in our true home, the one our hearts have always craved for all along, the home we are assured of, the home we are heading towards, heaven.